If you go to YouTube right now, you can find thousands of videos that promise to hypnotize you. Click on any one of them, and you'll hear gentle music playing under soft, soothing voices. These voices want you to slip into a trance, letting your mental guard down and becoming open to suggestion. The idea is that through hypnosis, you can lose weight, get rich, or even have a time-traveling spiritual experience. Hi, this is Joe Tracy, and welcome to this guided meditation for rediscovering your past lives. These YouTube videos are new, but our culture's fascination with retraining the brain through the power of suggestion, that goes back centuries. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. On today's show, we're getting hypnotized. Later in the show, how sleep deprivation on submarines can also lead to altered states of mind. The time on board the submarine, it's 24 hours. You know if it's 3 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon. But if you have a free-running circadian rhythm over a period of weeks, your internal clock might think it's 3 in the morning when actually it's 3 in the afternoon. But first, most people now think of hypnosis as entertainment or sometimes as a controversial form of therapy. But when it first came on the scene, it was considered a form of scientific progress. Emily Ogden is an assistant professor of English at the University of Virginia. Her book, Credulity, A Cultural History of Mesmerism, was released this year. Emily, I've always been fascinated by hypnotism and performances on stage that purport to have everybody knocked out. Is it real? I think that hypnosis raises the question of what we mean by real in a way that few other things are able to do. And that's what keeps coming back again and again for me as I think about it. So, for example, if someone hypnotizes you and gets you to quack like a duck, but you did it because you wanted to play along, but then sort of as you were playing along, you began to think, I don't know why I'm doing this. Why am I quacking like a duck? This doesn't make any sense. This isn't like me. Was that real or was that fake? So sometimes as we think about hypnosis, we find ourselves moving from the fake to the real and back again in ways that we don't expect. It is fascinating that you've written a book on the history of mesmerism. Is mesmerism the same as hypnosis, just another word for it? It's very similar, and it was a practice of putting people in trances that preceded hypnosis historically. So it started in the late 18th century, whereas hypnosis started in the middle of the 19th. And hypnosis is a development from mesmerism. It was actually an attempt to make it more scientific. So people who thought parts of mesmerism aren't real, in particular the theory that it involved the transfer of an invisible fluid from one body to another, those people became hypnotists, and they said it's not about a fluid. It's about suggestion. It's about our minds, our tendency to be influenced by what other people think. So that's the difference between the two, whether there's a fluid transferred between the minds of the participants or not, and, and when it happens. And who dreamed up mesmerism? It was a physician named Franz Anton Mesmer, who was educated in Vienna, and who had been 
searching around for a way to capitalize on all the new kinds of science that were happening at that moment. Benjamin Franklin's discoveries in electricity, Newton's discoveries in gravitation. And he finally hit on the idea of what he called animal magnetism, which was meant to be an invisible fluid, like what Benjamin Franklin thought that electricity was, that passed between bodies and that circulated through the nerves so that if you had a blockage in it in your nerves, you would become ill. And he said, I can cure those blockages. I can clear them out and let you become well again. And that cure had many other effects too. It made people convulse. It made them become strangely attracted to and drawn to the mesmerist. And those were all the side effects that ultimately became more interesting to people than the cure that Mesmer had originally proposed. And so mesmerism through him and then on and on took flight in France, even though Ben Franklin himself debunked it. That's right. And it it was popular before Franklin encountered it. That was why Franklin encountered it at all. He was appointed by a group of scientists to, in effect, debunk it. And then what happened was that, that as a result of their investigation, they found a part of mesmerism that was real. And that was the bond that was established between the mesmerist and the subject. That was the tendency that the subject had to believe what the mesmerist said. And this Franklin called imagination. We would now call it suggestion. And you have titled your book Credulity. That's right. Because that to me is what's interesting about mesmerism. It's a theory of credulity. Mesmerists came to say, we're the ones who can explain to you. Why do you believe other people? But also it was something that was constantly being accused of credulity. There were debunkers who would say only credulous people would fall for this. Tell me about the secret investigation and the report that was sent to the King of France about the effect of mesmerism on women. Yes. So in addition to publishing a report that went to everyone that said Mesmer is using his willpower and charisma to influence people, make them think that something's happening when it isn't. The commission also published a secret report for the king's eyes only, in which they stated their strong suspicions that Mesmer's female patients were having orgasms and that this was what was happening in his treatment salons when women were convulsing and, and um, fainting and, and falling against his padded walls as he manipulated their stomachs. Did this end the craze in France or ignite it? It was a mix of the two, and there was a fortuitous coincidence between the report and the French Revolution. So even if there had not been a report, the French Revolution would have put into disarray many things, including um, animal magnetism. But, but the interesting thing that happened was that after the revolution, people regrouped, mesmerists regrouped, and they said both what Mesmer said and what Franklin said was true. We were manipulating imagination. We were showing how belief affected people. That's what we were always doing. And that's what the animal magnetic fluid truly is. So they combined the theories of this famous first debunker and this founder into what became mesmerism and then hypnosis as we know it today. How did it take America by storm in the years before the Civil War? There was a Frenchman who was, in fact, a colonist in Guadeloupe. He was an enslaver, and he had been born on a plantation in Guadeloupe. He was educated in France, and then he came to the United States, where he uh, settled eventually in one of the new industrializing towns in Massachusetts, and he began trying to offer 
mesmerism to factory owners as a way of making their laborers more docile. And that was how he had seen, in effect, planters or enslavers using mesmerism on their slaves in Guadeloupe. So he made a connection between these two kinds of labor. So it was supposedly something that actually worked? He said that it did, and uh, it did clearly have effects on on people, even if those effects were what we would call suggestion. People would become drowsy. Some people became clairvoyant. They could see things that they couldn't otherwise see. And while there were always people who thought that these effects were feigned or imagined or not real, there were always people who thought, too, that they were real. Is that what then led, as you write, to this being used in factories in New England to help solve work problems with female workers. That was what Puyen hoped, the founder hoped. And it seems that that never took off. There weren't actually institutionalized programs of the sort that he imagined. But I think that we can tell from the way that he presented mesmerism, the way that he courted the favor of factory owners and and managers, that he thought it might be effective in that way. And one of the earliest experiments that he did that got traction in the U.S. where people really paid attention was with a factory worker named Cynthia Gleason. And he managed to make her wake up at a precise time that he had foreordained, just as the factory bell in towns in industrializing New England at that time would make workers wake up in the morning so that they could report to the factory at the appointed hour. And that factory bell was, for people at the time, a real symbol of the changes that industrialization was making in the landscape. So he seems to have been aligning mesmerism with those changes. When did it catch the imagination of people like Ralph Waldo Emerson? It caught the imagination of Emerson when it caught the imaginations of almost all the women who surrounded him. So Emerson was himself (laughs) a charming and polite skeptic about mesmerism. Uh, Sometimes in his writing, he could be acerbic. But with his own friends and acquaintances, including his second wife, Lydia Emerson, including his friend, Margaret Fuller, Emerson spent time investigating in his way the seances that Margaret Fuller and his wife would attend. But he learned about them from a distance. He considered them, but but he didn't actually get on board. And that was in the 1840s when mesmerism came to Boston. And there were other popular fiction writers of the time that incorporated it into their novels. If you look at Moby Dick, probably the best known novel that was to incorporate mesmerism, when Ahab is showing his magical control over the whale ship's crew, It's mesmerism that he's using, and people at the time would have easily recognized that. The Blythedale romance, Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel about a utopian community of that time in which he participated, has a mesmerical clairvoyant at its center. So we see all over the literature of that period, mesmerism used as a way to think through these same questions that we still use hypnosis to think through. What is a real kind of influence between two people, and what allows us to come to believe or not believe those things that other people say. You write that Edgar Allan Poe also incorporated it into his writing. He did. He wrote several times about mesmerism, including in his story set in Charlottesville, A Tale of the Ragged Mountains, where he writes about the rapport between a mesmerist and his subject, so that as the mesmerist writes his memoirs, the subject 
unbeknownst to him, re-experiences those memoirs. He also, in his tale, um, The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar, writes about a person being mesmerized at the point of death with the idea that perhaps if you were mesmerized at that moment, you could actually continue to report what you saw past the moment of death beyond the grave. And, oh, my and gosh. This what is what a, Poe imagined. What a notion. Yes, yes. The idea of using that power to have us continue however long or short. That's right. He he did two treatments of that idea, actually, and in one it works and in the other it doesn't. So in the facts in the case of M. Valdemar, the dead person simply decays. And in The Mesmeric Revelation, he describes what just coincidentally happened to be Poe's own theories about what he sees in the afterlife. Do you think mesmerism would work on skeptics or just people who are especially credulous. <laughs> One of the things that we often think is that it only works on the credulous. And there's a truth to that because you need to have a certain willingness to be mesmerized. And yet what we see over the course of the history of mesmerism is people switching camps. So somebody will start out as a skeptic and find him or herself becoming less and less skeptical as as the interview goes on. So there was a famous case of a, of a newspaper editor in New York in the 1830s, William Leetstone, who went to Providence with the express purpose of debunking a clairvoyant who said that she could do spirit travel. And by the end of his interview with her, he was completely converted, and he published the pamphlet that made her name and that had really a lot to do with the increase of mesmerism's fame in that period. So skeptics did sometimes get on board. You also write that a lot of times the very mesmerists would incorporate these debunking accusations into their act. They did. And in particular, they would either separate themselves from the debunkings of the past and say, we're no longer doing mesmerism, we're doing something new, and it turned out to be exactly the same thing under another name. Or they would simply take the demonstrations that debunkers had done in order to show that mesmerism was false and repurpose them as ways of showing that it was true. So there was a debunker named J. Stanley Grimes, who himself became a kind of a mesmerist, who showed that one set of claims, which is that you could mesmerize bumps on the head and cause personality manifestations to happen, like you would touch the part of the head responsible for love and you would get amative behavior. Grimes showed this wasn't true. This was all suggestion. But then the next generation of mesmerists used Grimes' technique for showing that it was suggestion to launch the very first mass audience mesmerism that was performed on stages before groups of thousands of people. And so in that way, there really was a traffic back and forth between those who believed and those who didn't. Have you ever seen anybody do it or purport to do it? I have. Mesmerism, I should say hypnosis, today is performed in two kinds of contexts. One is on stage, and um, that's often for entertainment so that we can see other people do things that they wouldn't have expected that they would do. And the other is in therapeutic uh, contexts where therapists will offer suggestions that are kindly meant. They will uh, suggest that you stop smoking, for example, and that will help you to achieve that goal which you have set for yourself. And so I've, I've seen it happening in both of those contexts. So if the 1830s were part of the heyday for mesmerism, what finally brought it to an end? 
In the U.S., the end of mesmerism was the beginning of seance spiritualism, which is a similar practice of entrancing a person, just like a mesmeric clairvoyant would be entranced. But in the case of seance spiritualism, the entranced person contacts the dead and often has the dead speak through him or her almost as though the dead person, the spirit, were mesmerizing the clairvoyant. So mesmerism died out as spiritualism rose to prominence in the U.S. And in, the, in Europe, in France in particular, mesmerism died out as hypnosis became a more accepted medical technique, particularly in the mental hospitals of Paris, including the Salpêtrière. This is such a fascinating research and book topic. You must have a lot of people deeply interested when you tell them this is what you wrote about. It is something that provokes a lot of interest. And one of the things that has fascinated me the most about people's responses is that they often track with the responses that I find in the 19th century, which is that some people, sometimes, for example, psychotherapists, need me to know that hypnosis was a fraud. Others need me to tell them whether hypnosis is a fraud. So they want to know right away, is it real? And I I don't know how to answer that question because that for me is the central question. What do we mean by it being real? But it fascinates me that we still have that same interest that people had in the 19th century in making sure that we draw the right lines between reality and unreality when it comes to how we influence each other. Well, Emily Ogden, thank you for talking with me about it today and with good reason. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Can creep up inside you and consume you A disease of the mind that can control you I feel like a monster oh. Emily Ogden is an assistant professor of English at the University of Virginia. Her book, Credulity, A Cultural History of Mesmerism, was released this year. You don't need hypnosis or mesmerism to alter your mind. Sometimes all it takes is a lack of sleep. Jeff Dyke knows that firsthand. Jeff is an associate professor of psychology at James Madison University. Jeff, you were recruited by the Navy to study the sleeping patterns of submariners on nuclear submarines. Why was that? Well, the research that I was doing at the time involved the impact of low-frequency magnetic fields that permeate our society because of the industrial age, light switches, blow dryer, microwave oven. They emit this low, very low-frequency magnetic field. And I was interested in how these magnetic fields affect the pineal gland production. That's this gland in your head, in your brain, that produces this hormone that most people are familiar with called melatonin. And so there was some research indicating that people that are exposed to these magnetic fields, that people that live near power, power generators, uh, have lower levels of melatonin. And so I was experimenting with rats, seeing if I could get the same thing in them. What I found was that it actually mildly increased the production of melatonin in the rats. And the Navy was very interested in this, and they said the containers that I put the rats in looked very much like a submarine. And so they asked me to do some research for them, but it required that I actually join the Navy. And did you? I did, and donned a Navy uniform before stepping on board a submarine. What sort of things did you come away with from that that a lay audience might be interested in? Well, I think lay audiences, the first thing they think of when they think of a submarine is, gosh, you must get claustrophobia really badly. 
But that was something that I was worried about before I got on board. But it's really just like being in a building without any windows. But it's a small building with a lot of other guys, right? It's a small building. It's about on the space of a three-bedroom home where you have about 120, 125 people <laughs> on, on board with you. So privacy is somewhat of an issue. But claustrophobia, which is something that I think I might, I've experienced before, I didn't experience on board a submarine. What did you notice you hadn't expected in terms of, I miss the sound of birds or traffic? Well, I think a lot of people that have spent time on board submarines will comment about there's kind of an unusual odor on board of like uh, sweat and oil and diesel engine fuel. And so it was the, <laughs> the, the unusual smell that was kind of hard to get used to. Then when you get off the boat, your clothes kind of reek of this unusual submarine smell. So that was a pretty striking thing, the odor on board the submarine. So the Navy wanted you to look into the effect of sleep deprivation on these submariners, the fact that they were doing unusual shifts, which was messing up their circadian rhythms. Yes, the shifts were very unusual, and the circadian rhythms were definitely messed up. And it was an unusual work for six hours, then off for 12 hours, and then back to work. So an 18-hour day. Why had they initially gone to an 18-hour shift? It's a good question. This all started with the advent of the nuclear submarine. The old diesel boats had shifts that were four hours long. They'd go on for four, off for eight, and then on for four, off for eight, which is a 24-hour shift. But they found that it was hard to do this with the extra requirements to maintain the nuclear reactor. So the shifts elongated to six. Then they had the 12 hours off, and they just there isn't enough crew on board to break it into four shifts. So they had to go with three shifts for six hours thus an 18-hour day. And so when you were investigating, what was the effect on the bodies and performance of the submariners? What did you find? Uh, we found that something happens when you're not exposed to the rising and setting of the sun, and that is your circadian rhythms free run. And a free running circadian rhythm is just your internal clock trying to guess as to what time it is. And as it turns out, it guesses a little slow. Our internal clock is a little bit slower than the rotating of the Earth. In fact, the Navy found that the circadian rhythm elongated to about 24.5 hours. And what was the effect on performance and biology on these people? Well, so if your internal clock is running at 24.5 hours and your daily rhythm or your daily work schedule is 18 hours, you have times where your performance is at its peak um, at various times of the day. So the time on board the submarine, it's 24 hours. You know if it's 3 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon. But if you have a free-running circadian rhythm over a period of weeks, your internal clock might think it's 3 in the morning when actually it's 3 in the afternoon. And so this impacts performance in a negative way. In, in simple terms, how could it? Why, why not simply just be more productive at weird hours? That was the hope that would be the case. But the data is, is clear that we just don't perform as well at 3 in the morning as we do 3 in the afternoon because we are diurnal species. We're designed to be awake during the day and to sleep at night. And many of our physiological processes are designed to do that as well. And so that's why we're more likely to make mistakes uh, when we're doing late-night shifts. And what's worse on a submarine is you don't even realize it's a late-night shift when you, you might think, well, it's the day. I should be awake. But your internal clock is saying, no, it isn't. You should be asleep. 
And so it's kind of a battle between the two, and the physiology is going to win every time. Did you find any health effects on the submariners who had this 18-hour cycle? Yes. Um, one of the number one reasons that a submariner gets sick on board a submarine and has to be medevaced off the boat is something that the submariners refer to as gut rot, but what medical professionals would refer to as gastrointestinal distress. And we know that one of the problems with people that are working the night shift when they're supposed to be sleeping is they get gastrointestinal problems. And so that was one of the big problems on board submarines was such severe stomach aches that they had to be medevaced off the boat. Have studies shown other ill health effects psychologically or physiologically from shift work? Yes. Um, the World Health Organization has recently classified shift work, of which all submariners are shift workers, is now considered um, a carcinogen. That's in line with someone who's exposed to diesel fuel fumes uh, day after day. So we know that the rates of cancer in shift workers like emergency physicians, like uh, nurses, is higher than the general public who are not exposed to shift work. Is there a theory for this? Well, the immunological system has a circadian rhythm as well, and it seems to be compromised, and it's, it's a stressor. We know that if you're stressed, you produce various hormones, you produce inflammatory cytokines, and uh, this hormone called cortisol, that aren't consistent with good immunological functioning. One thing that's been causing some problems with with sleep and circadian rhythms to a certain extent is the smartphone. The smartphone is a bright light that students will look at at one in the morning. And this bright light hitting your eyes, as far as your eyes are concerned, that's the sun. And so one in the morning is when you should be sleeping. And if the sun is up, then it's, it, it confuses the part of the brain that's trying to regulate the time of the day. And so this can cause some delays in circadian rhythms. It could be why some young people uh, stay up later than they used to and why they want to sleep in later than they used to, in part because light is bad for this hormone called melatonin that you normally produce late in the evening. That's a trigger for you to go to sleep. And bright light will suppress the production of melatonin. Are there things shift workers can do to help mitigate bad effects? Well, most shift workers try really hard to trick their brain into thinking day is night and night is day. In hospitals or research institutes or what have you, we'll have very bright lights and simulating the sun during the night. And so then they try to drive home really quickly and then put the blinds on the windows and make it as dark as possible to try and pretend that it's night. But the problem is there's social pressures to do stuff during the day on weekends. And so the circadian rhythm, is it's a constant, constant struggle for the shift worker that works the third shift because the brain can't be fooled very easily. Did the Navy take steps after these studies of submariners? Yes. Happily, the Navy has now switched, and they now have 24-hour schedules. And so, and so I'm very happy to report that the Navy is now doing shift work that's in keeping with their 24-hour clocks. What are you looking at now that's interesting you? What we're looking at now is the effects of sleep deprivation on the production of this neurotransmitter called adenosine. If you drink coffee, you're suppressing the effects of adenosine. Throughout the day, adenosine builds up as a breakdown of energy metabolism in your cells, and adenosine builds up in part of the brain 
that makes you feel tired. And so adenosine, we think, is something that contributes to the sleepy feelings that we feel as the day progresses. And so we drink coffee or drink caffeinated beverages, and that blocks the adenosine receptors and keeps you from feeling the effects of sleepiness. Well, Jeff Dyke, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. Jeff Dyke is an associate professor of psychology at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. There's a quote from a central piece of Buddhist scripture. All experiences are preceded by mind, having mind as their master, created by mind. It describes one of the core beliefs of Buddhism. Control the mind and you'll control your experience. But what exactly is mind? How can we control what we don't understand? We'll hear from a professor trying out new mind-measuring technology on a class of meditating students and explore how meditating on faith can be a form of divine love. For some people, the mind is a place of constant pressure and anxiety. And at universities in particular, many students are turning to mindfulness exercises to help free themselves from their own inner demons. At the University of Mary Washington, Assistant Professor of Religion Dan Hirschberg leads a new minor in contemplative studies. What do you think accounts for the rapid growth in this field of contemplative studies in higher education? I think that on the one hand, there became a greater awareness of Buddhist traditions um, coming out of the 90s. Yoga developed and became very popular. And then on the other, we also have the rigorous scientific study of meditators. Over the years, the rigor of the science has improved. But the general view of meditation is that it's something helpful that can be applied and that does have real measurable positive effects. Your first exposure to real meditation was when you traveled abroad in college, right? Yes, I had an introduction on campus, but then I did a study abroad program in India and Nepal where we meditated twice a day, every day. And what sort of people did you meet there where you were doing more than merely meditate, but actually finding a more transcendent experience? Striving for one anyway. Um, I think we were in Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha gained enlightenment 2,500 years ago. So in that, it really is the epicenter of the Buddhist universe. It draws many different pilgrims from all over the world, and likewise, many different meditation masters as well. The most inspiring people that we met were the meditation masters that would come in and actually train us in these traditions. One of my first Buddhist teachers was a Sri Lankan lay practitioner by the name of Godwin Samaratne. Um, he was a librarian into like his 50s. He never married, and he took care of his mother. And late in life, he took an interest in meditation. The depth of his practice was incredible. He never left a true state of contemplation and meditation, this incredibly even, peaceful state where kindness seemed to be the only real focus. Kindness and empathy are everything, aren't they? 
I'd like them to be. You know, I think um, they make such a huge difference in human experience, and this is something we teach our students as well, that, that that's what it is to be truly present, to be aware of, of that which is around us and have actual care for it, to be able to or strive at least to see it from its own side. And that's the nature of relationship. This is what we strive to do is to see and be seen. And um, again, I think meditation can really help with this. Were you striving for religiosity, or were you striving to calm the demons inside? Or what was your young frame of mind during this period? Uh, well, I was really, you know, again, being kind of a grunge kid, uh, we were anti-institution, and my first impulse was to reject anything that was established religion. So even when I got to Bodh Gaya, uh, at the center of the Buddhist universe there, I was really resistant to identifying myself as Buddhist at all. But as I kept studying and as I kept practicing, uh, it just became, I, it, it answered all the questions that I had and, and took it much, much further. Um, and so both intellectually and then practically as well in the ways of working with mind, I found it to be profoundly transformative. And by the time I, that program was over, I knew there was nothing else that I wanted to do. I wanted to keep studying these traditions for the rest of my life. What was it about Buddhism that really spoke to you? Well, to begin, I mean, I think the first teaching of the Buddha um, has to do with the nature of suffering in the way that that simply exists in this world, uh, the way that it appears. So in that, it doesn't try to shy away from the persistence of suffering and that being a defining aspect of not just human experience, but the experience of all living things. And then beyond that, it kind of flips it and starts to discuss these notions of empathy and compassion is so central. And so in many respects, you have the heat of samsara, of cyclic existence of this world extinguished by moments and the development of compassion and empathy for oneself and for others. And that was a profound instruction as well, that in this tradition, uh, you know, we often take Buddhism to have the orientation of, okay, well, it's only about others. But if you don't have compassion for yourself, then you can't have compassion for others. You really have to be able to offer it completely. The breath is with us from the first moment of life to the very last, and yet we pay so little attention to it. You know, in more scientific terms, just sitting here, taking some deep breaths, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which causes a physiological response and helps us relax. It's totally basic and essential, and yet it's something that uh, we don't tend to be so aware of. I've heard a number of people say that when meditating with an instructor, or perhaps with yoga, they often become so relaxed, they weep, and it initially um, startles them. People can be startled in lots of different ways. Um, there's lots of new experiences that arise, and likewise, there's lots of different things that can be discovered. So on the one hand, if we can suddenly become in touch with a deeper sense of our own humanity, we can develop a sense of compassion for of our, even for ourselves that's overwhelming and kind of floods out. The emotion is there. The emotion is present. And people can connect with that very directly, even without words. So sometimes that's more than enough. You've been doing an interesting thing, trying out 
headsets that can monitor brain waves for people as they meditate. I imagine you have a headset and you're able to sort of watch on a screen whether you're able to control, flatten, or animate your brain waves. Is that what this is? Basically, yeah. You know, the technology is still developing. Some of them purport to read those brain waves and give you audio feedback for when you're in a meditative state or not. The other one, which is more sensitive, it can be used for more scientific purposes. And on that one, you can see uh, brain waves in real time. There's different types of brain waves associated with different types of brain states. And so the goal is to learn how to place your brain physiologically within these states of emitting these waves. There was an extraordinary student that you had who was exemplary in cognitive neuroscience and yet who said your courses really transformed her life. How so? She was truly an outstanding student, one of the very best to graduate. She had the scientific side down, but I think part of what always drove her interest and her inquiry was delving deeper into human experience and what helps us experience our lives. Um, So on the one hand, science tells us a lot about that. But on the other hand, it doesn't really get down to the heart of human experience either. When she took the advanced course in contemplative practice, where they are given the opportunity to study any form of contemplation that they're interested in, she decided to do uh, lucid dreaming. So in the Tibetan tradition in particular, there's actually a form of practice where meditation doesn't end when we lose consciousness and go to sleep. One strives to maintain a state of awareness throughout all the various stages of sleep. While dreaming, there's various techniques to awaken within the dream, realize that you're dreaming. And as a result of that, you're able to manipulate your experience. And again, being such a diligent student and a diligent practitioner, it took her a couple of months, but eventually she did start having some lucid dreams. Do you think there's anything about this meditative experience that cannot still be understood by science? I think science is its own language and has its own mode of inquiry. So it tells us a lot of things, but it speaks its own language. Unfortunately, it's too often the case that that language really doesn't map onto our subjective experience. In many respects, it removes the, the love, I guess you could say, almost takes the heart from it. And so to look at it only from a scientific perspective, it's really only telling one side. I don't think science is much closer really to telling us what our experience is. I don't think it does the best job of telling us what mind is. And even beyond that, I don't think um, it's even reaching to tell us really what is beyond mind. Dan Hirschberg is an assistant professor of religion at the University of Mary Washington. Coming up next, how love is at work in Indian religion. Meditation and mindfulness have become a big part of self-love, a wellness movement encouraging people to take a moment for themselves amid the hectic flurry of daily life. But my next guest says self-love is only part of the equation. Graham Schweig is a professor of Indian religion at Christopher Newport University and the author of a recent book about love in the Indian tradition. He's also a celebrated yogi, 
having taken up daily meditative practice when he was still a teenager in the 1960s. Graham, what was your first introduction to Indian religion? It came about in a very strange way. My parents took me out of public school, middle school, and put me in a private school in the Washington, D.C. area. And the headmaster thought I should get a head start, take a summer course, and he was teaching linguistics. I didn't even know what it was until I started taking it. And he talked about the Middle Eastern languages, Hebrew, Hittite, and all these things. He moved then over to the east to India, started talking about Sanskrit and the Vedas, the oldest sacred texts in the world, the texts in which we find uh, yoga and so on. And I just, for uh, some unexplicable reason, had to learn more. What were you hearing? Can you remember what the 13-year-old you thought was so fascinating about that? First of all, I was struck by the the beautiful, sonorous uh, recitations of Sanskrit. Just beautiful stuff. Aham saravasya prabhavo matta sarvam pravartate itti matva bhajante mam bhava samanvitaha. I mean, it just sings. That was one of the first things that struck me. Did you begin yoga and meditation then? Yes. Back then, um, in the mid-60s, uh, the immigration laws had lifted for Indian immigrants to come. And so every yoga teacher, practically, that came to the U.S. at the time, I visited. I had audience of such a teacher in D.C., and I started practicing yoga at age 14 very, very seriously, such that at age 15, I asked my parents if I could drop out of high school. And they said, well, okay, but what will you do all day? And I said, meditate. Can you imagine? Did you? Yes. I can't imagine that. Yes. Well, that's what I did. I seriously took up the life and practice of yoga. I became a very strict vegetarian, which I am to this day. But then a year later, I felt like I wanted to pursue an academic track to gain the knowledge of Sanskrit and these great texts. So you began to explore these, this notion of divine love? Yes. Yeah. This was, I found at the very heart and ultimate stage of yoga. One gained self-realization, all to be able to abandon the self for the sake of the object of love. The, the idea that one, first of all, has to become purified of mind and heart, the troublesome experiences of the past, the difficult challenges that one has had in life, all of these things are there, and that's okay, but one has to shift in one's relationship to those things to be able to leave them and go beyond. That's the power of yoga. It's not bad that we've had bad experiences or troublesome experiences. What's bad is if we get stuck there and we don't know how to go beyond them. That's what yoga does. But then yoga goes further. It's not just about transcendence. It's about moving so deeply within the recesses of the heart so that we can actually pour out loving kindness to others. And where do we find this in writings from Indian religious practices? Yes. Well, one of the texts that I've always loved is the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is often referred to as the Bible of Hinduism. But really, it's held such fascination to people in the West since 1785, 
with the first translation into English by Charles Wilkins. Did did some of the greatest writers, philosophers, and thinkers um, from the Western tradition begin to incorporate it or explore it in their own writings? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The transcendentalists in New England, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, other poets uh, had begun to really tap into this this great wisdom tradition, finding things there that they couldn't find anywhere else, such as the whole idea of of a kind of transcendent being on the one hand, but yet also a kind of um, felicitous and absolute joy where love is pictured as a kind of supreme and eternal dance, a dance with the divine. Is that not more descriptive, perhaps, and poetical? But isn't it similar to Western traditions? You think of the hymn in Christianity, love divine, all loves excelling, joy yes. from heaven to earth come down. Yes. I mean, there are, there are parallels. I would say that there are parallels uh, more bit in, uh, between uh, Catholic mysticism, like John of the Cross, who speaks about these different relationships, these intimate relationships one can have with God. So Christians, for instance, are learning that God doesn't force us to love God, but hopes for it and wants it. Similar? Yes. Similar but different. The, the, there, there is in Christian traditions the idea that the soul is innately flawed. In Hindu traditions, the soul is perfect, but it's covered with a lot of imperfections. So it's about digging down deep enough to get to that perfect soul. Also, a marked difference is there is no God of judgment. There's this idea that there's cosmic justice, karma. A naive question. Please. In all religions, there's always that conflict between the ideal and the practice of it. Yes. And so you don't see among Christian nations or among Hindu nations an absence of war, conflict, murder, and vice. Yes, that is true. And religion, one can easily say, has been one of the greatest sources of bloodshed and terror in the world. And at the same time, amazingly, it is also the place to find some of the greatest human achievements. So it's, it's a real irony there. Um, but, you know, religion's not the problem. Um, science is not the problem. It's the human condition that's the problem. It's the way we go into these things. One uh, famous Persian poet by the name of Rabia al-Wadiya, she wrote this beautiful phrase. She said, O Lord, if I worship you in hopes of heaven, exclude me from heaven. If I worship you out of fear of hell, throw me into hell. But if I worship you for your own sake, please don't withhold from me your eternal beauty. That selflessness is the highest level of religion. Is human love for one another a selfless love or selfish love? It's the place to practice selfless love. This is, we have marvelous opportunities in our relationships in this world to get a taste of pure love and to get a taste of when love is not pure. And this we can gain from relationships with animals, with children, with friends, with spouses, with family members, and so on. Um, 
that's what this Eastern tradition says, is that these relationships here are meant to help us find this perfect love. Among the things you're working on now is a book called The Yoga of Love. Tell me about that. Yes. It is about this supreme vision of a dance of divine love, how human beings long and desire and yearn for greater and greater closeness. And this is idealized in this vision, which is exquisite poetry from the Sanskrit that I've translated, and I speak about the traditions that interpret it. Can you translate for us some of it? Uh, Let's see. Um, I can give you the first verse. Bhagavan apitaratri sharadot pullamallika vikshrantumanas chakre yogamayam upashritaha. So even God, seeing those autumn nights with blooming jasmine flowers, turned his mind toward love's delights, taking full refuge in yoga maya's powers, in the power of yoga, essentially. So here, not only do humans practice yoga, but God practices yoga. Yoga means union and the striving for closer and closer and greater and greater union. You know, in love, where if love is vibrant, it's not stagnant. We always desire even greater closeness with those we love. So love is about, if I can make up a word here, closerness. Greater and greater closeness. And are there tricks to that? The tricks are to get out of the way. Now, to get out of the way, practice yoga. Practice yoga allows you to go beyond your conditioning. And the kinds of obstructions that would block us from releasing our hearts more fully and more purely. Can it help us politically and in our very divided time? Well, I would say that it begins with hearing, really hearing. People are, uh, uh, in a bullish way, putting their ideas forward. The Internet is, is sort of overwhelmed with, uh, uh, you know, difference of opinions and this and that and so on. Again, when will we sit down and just hear one another? This is, this is where it begins. As a leader uh, of the country, we need that from him. As politicians with one another, we need that from each other. As students and teachers, as family members, we need it at every level. We need to start hearing it's about, you know, it's the process of moving from an intrinsically egocentric existence to an alter-centric existence. The ability to be centered upon another instead of upon oneself. Well, Graham, this has been delightful. Thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Graham Schweig is a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Christopher Newport University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and 
by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com, with good reason, is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Chris Boros at WMRA in Harrisonburg. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thank you.